listener production. You are listening to episode four of the Howie Games Artist Series Part B with comedian and all-round entertainer Will Anderson. Onwards. So what was the first stand-up gig you did? Can you remember it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. SB Comedy, Sunday afternoon. Um, so Esplanade Hotel, St Kilda, they used yeah. to do a Sunday afternoon gig. Uh, which was all uh, open mic comics. So if people don't know what that means, it means five minutes. So you're doing five minutes and they're mostly people who are doing somewhere between their first gig and their probably their 20th or 30th gig. They might have a few people sprinkled in who've done more like 40 or 50. And what they would do is they'd have an experienced MC and then they'd probably have 10 or 12 of these acts over the afternoon. It was from 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I reckon, until about 6, 6.30 at night. And people would come in on a Sunday afternoon to the SB. It was only like five bucks to get in or something like that. And they'd have essentially Sunday sessions. So they'd be great audiences. You know, some people drinking in the pub, they'd roll in the back, watch some comedy. And I remember this was the place that I would go and watch open mic comedy. By this stage, I was in Melbourne. I was working at the Herald and Weekly Times and um, – but I was miserable, re- absolutely miserable. And I really wanted to be a comedian at that point. That's really why I'd gone to Melbourne. So I'd gone out and started to watch comedy. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to the ESPY and my observation was that I definitely wasn't going to be the best person on, but I thought I probably wouldn't be the worst. And often it's mm-hmm. that that inspires you. more. Like it's ridiculous to see Billy Connolly and say, I think I can do that. But it's not ridiculous to go to an open mic and see three or four people and go, oh, I reckon I'd be better than them. I might not be the best person on, but I reckon I'd be better than them. And so I went a few weeks in a row. I reckon it was three weeks in a row. And each week I thought I would have at least been fourth worst on. And in my mind. (laughs) Fourth worst on. (laughs) In my mind, no one remembered fourth worst on, right? Like maybe you remember the worst, maybe the second worst, but by fourth worst you were just forgettable. And so that gave me the courage to do it. I had lowered the bar of entry to a point where I thought that I could step over it. So I signed up to the uh, – Trevor Hall was the guy who used to run the SB Comedy there and I signed up with Trev and I got on a waiting list and my first gig was hosted by Steve Bedwell, who uh, some people mm. might know, uh, Steve Bedwell, a very famous Australian comedian at the time. And, uh, yeah, it, was, uh, it went incredibly well as um, a lot of people's first gigs do. It went well? I would say more often than not, people's first gigs go great. There is something about the momentum, the enthusiasm, the – I think comedy is at its best about authenticity. If you can be in that moment with that room, sometimes you can get a bigger laugh from just acknowledging what is going on. Like I do these improv shows now where I walk out on stage in front of like 1,000 people, no plans at all. I am just start talking and I just – you know, I'm Steve War. I'm not thinking about what shots to play. I'm just seeing where it goes and I'm playing shots. Or to put it more in your language, I'm surfing. I have all the skills of a great surfer yeah. and now I'm just going to like read the waves and see what's out there and, you know, go with it. I think you have those instincts in your first gig. There's something about when you don't know anything huh. that connects with an audience. What then happens is you now have one survey full of information and you think you know everything, which is the biggest mistake you can make. As soon as you do it, you start to make assumptions about it. Hello, I I am from Australia and so I'm glad to be here so I can use water. 
Because in Australia, we're in the middle of a drought, which means we have to see ridiculous ads on the television all the time from the government. My favourite one, they say this on TV, if you're having a shower, shower with someone else. <laughs> when have you ever had a shower with someone else and it's taken less time? <laughs> Unless you're in prison. My other favourite actually says, if you're washing your car, make sure you do it over your plants. <laughs> I can't do that. How the hell am I going to get my car in my attic? It's even when I'm trying new material. Often a joke will work the first time and then it'll take me another 10 times to get back to how well it worked the first time. Because the first time it came out, because I had no expectations. I wasn't going, here's the funny beat. And once that expectation's there, you literally phrase something in a way where you're like, I'm you know, waiting for the laugh here. And it can change the audience's connection with the bit because they can see it working. So often I think that comedians go so much because you're so honest because you don't know what you're trying to hide yet. It's normally your second gig that goes terribly. And for me, that was absolutely the case. Okay, well, we'll get to that then because I, I want to talk about success and failure. Uh, you listen to the show, uh, you know my kids. So you now get uh, the big penguin who- Oh, uh, good. This is good. Yeah, well, sometimes these questions <laughs> needed to be edited and uh, and redone, but this one, he went, uh, he went off his own and he got it okay. So here you go, mate. Hey, Will, big penguin here. My dad thinks he's funny. He's not funny at all, but I really think you're funny. Do you ever get nervous when you're telling jokes in front of so many people? And if you do, how do you deal with the nerves? Good question, Penguin. That's what mm. I would firstly say. Mm. Um, uh, I think that size is not the issue. That, that would be the first thing I would say. In fact, the bigger the better in a lot of ways up until a point. There is a point where people get too far away from you. I don't like to perform to pe more than 3,000 people in a room. I what's, think it's What's the most you've performed to? Uh, probably five or 6,000. <laughs> okay. But, but I, I think that once you're getting to sort of my, – my ideal size theatre is 1,000. The comedy okay. theatre that I play in Melbourne, I love it because it feels, still feels like a small room even though there's 1,000 people in the room. And to me that feels like it's just me on stage – telling jokes, a 1,000 feels right. But you can get up to about 3,000 and still get an intimacy in the room. But then people are just too far away to connect with the show. Um, but if you make half of 3,000 people laugh, that's 1,500 people laughing. If you make half of 30 people laugh, it's only 15 people laughing. So yeah. in some ways, the bigger the better. You know, you get a bigger noise in the room. So it's not the size of the crowd. Do I still get nervous beforehand? Absolutely 100% not. I do not get nervous beforehand because – as much as people want to know about your bad gigs, you don't get to the level that you've got to in my career by constantly having bad gigs. Of no. course I still have bad gigs. Everyone, in, Every comedian in the world, part of the joy of my job is you're trying to master something that is essentially unmasterable. Kelly Slater still gets dumped by waves. It doesn't... Mm. It doesn't always work out, you know. Sometimes Alan Border makes a duck on his in his hundredth test match. Oh, you know what I mean? Curly like, Ambrose, bold, <laughs> walked off. I was in tears. Yes, thanks, Will. Yorker again, and Alan Border in his one hundredth test match is yorked for a duck. So beforehand, no, no, I'm not nervous because the weight of evidence that I have is that 
this will go well. If I prepare properly, if I'm ready to go, this will go well. Hmm. But are there moments within shows where you drop that joke that normally, say, is five minutes in and normally gets a round of applause and that's sort of your tester joke of where you can pitch the rest of the show? If it, say, got an underwhelming and you're just like, ooh, I've got a lot of worse jokes than that one in the show, there are moments then within it where you suddenly the nerves can kick in and you're like, well, how do I readjust? Something has gone wrong here. Somebody's heckling. Somebody's – there's movement in the room. I've missed a joke. I've – haven't set something up properly. I've said something that I shouldn't have said. All those things can make you nervous in the moment. I I remember I was doing a show recently, this improv show, and I reckon I was 25 minutes in before like just one of the jokes did not land. And I remember saying to the audience, like half joking, I said, I just threw that one in so that you realise this was hard. You know, (laughs) because up until that point I almost made it look too easy. So it's you know, Steve you'd... Smith playing the false shot every right. now and then. <laughs> you just got to remember that I'm making it look very easy, but <laughs> it is not easy. Warning, consuming this might make you go back to your hotel. Drink all the small bottles out of the minibar. Get in your underwear, grab the bottles and walk around your hotel going, I'm a giant. <laughs> I love that joke because even if you don't laugh, I guarantee you next time you're alone in a hotel room. So, mate, what, what, um, let's start with the positive side of it. What is it like when you're on stage in front of your audience of 1,500 people and you are flying and they are in the palm of your hand? And you are making people laugh. I've seen you however many times when I've walked home with Erica and said, my sides are hurting. What is that like when you have the audience? What does it feel like? I like that you don't have the death penalty here. I'm anti the death penalty. I'm anti it. I I like the electric chair. Because if you go into the electric chair, they give you your final meal. Whatever you want to eat in the world, they will bring you. I love that because I'm a guilty eater and I would just love that freedom. If I was going to the electric chair, I would just order a tub of butter. I'd be like, ah! And then some unpopped corn. (laughs) Just so when they flick the switch. (laughs) It's horrible, but it smells like the movies. It's... A really overpowering feeling when you first get it. When you have done it a lot, you you aren't actually really concentrating that on that as much. It becomes one of the things that are going on when you're on stage. But so much of it is about, you know, it goes back to you. I think so much of what I am doing now when I'm on stage is me concentrating on what I'm doing for their benefit rather than concentrating on how they're reacting. You know, I don't want to be one of those people who's constantly, you know, changing how I am just based on them. Like, I think that's how you first start. You know, I always say with comedy, if you want to see what my show is, you have to come on the first night because the first night is what I thought the show was going to be. And then every night after that, it becomes changed by the fact that I do it in front of audiences Mm. and this bit works and this doesn't work. And it becomes a collaboration with the audience, what the show is. So, Now when I'm on stage, you absolutely want a connection with the audience, but I'm in charge, they're not in charge. And I think there's a point where it flips between those two, where when they're in charge, that feeling from them can feel incredibly 
validating. Whereas if you flip to when you're in charge, you're like, no, it's my responsibility to get them to that feeling. So you're flying. You're a star in Australian comedy, TV, radio, and we're focusing on comedy, mate, or we're here for six hours if we start talking about producing television shows and doing breakfast radio, et cetera. But then for whatever reason you decide, we've had Scotty McLaughlin on the Howie Games sports podcast, dominated in the V8s, three-time champion, probably could have won 10 and been the biggest fish in the big pond. He said, no, I'm going to go to America and I'm going to try and race a whole different car called IndyCar and he's doing that now and he has started back at square one. Why go to America and try – it's like me going to America and try and commentating their sport. It's, it's going to take a long time to get accepted, probably more acceptable in your caper. But why and what was it like? When, when you And where'd you go and how does it get booked? And what happens when you walk into some little funny bar in the middle of Alaska and you, you have to roll out your gear? I'm fascinated by this, mate, your whole American experience. So it's my favourite part of my career and my life without Is a it? doubt. Is it? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. I can say it without reservation because I got to start again when I was already good. Like, you know, the problem with starting the first time, it, there's a lot of joy and excitement and worry about whether it can happen and all those things are absolutely brilliant. Once you get to the point where it is happening for you, some of those things that made it exciting in the first place go away. But the problem with starting out is, well, particularly in my case was, you're not that good, right? And you're trying to get better. But I got with America, I got an opportunity to start again in a place that firstly it is the home of stand-up comedy. Stand-up mm. comedy as we know it, you know, is really an American tradition, like very much incorporated now around the rest of the world, but it was the home of it. You, there is not a, a state in America, a city in America that doesn't have a comedy club. Often these comedy clubs are full regardless of the acts that come into town and so that was certainly something that I benefited from. So basically I went to America and suddenly I was working a lot because say you're running a club in Cleveland, you run this like 500-seat comedy club in Cleveland and three, three weeks out of every four weeks – you know, you get somebody who's off the radio or has a very popular podcast or, you know, does television work. You know, you might even get a really big star in for the week. But once every sort of like, you know, month or once every eight weeks, what you really are doing is putting through, you know, all the friends of the club, all the people who join up to the supporter programs, blah, blah, blah. And what you're as a club owner is you're looking for someone that you're not paying an exorbitant amount of money, but he's going to come in and do a really good job. So ideally for a club, if they can fill the room with all the people they need to fill the room with, but with an unknown, you know, on like, you know, you know a third of the money, a fifth of the money, a tenth of the money that you might be paying like a, a television headliner, but with 15 years of stand-up comedy behind them in another country, I was incredibly employable. I suited the business model okay. of all these clubs okay. in an incredible way. So for me, it was almost a perfect scenario. And if you talk about that joy of connecting with an audience, I, I talk about something called the expectation gap. So when somebody comes and sees my show now, if they've paid, you know, 55, 60 bucks, they're sitting in a theatre, they've got a babysitter, you know, 
there's an expectation that you've invested that much of your time and your money that this thing better be pretty bloody good, right? Yes. If yes. this is not a seven or eight minimum out of ten experience, then next time I'll be thinking about you know somewhere else that I could get that experience. So even if my show is a nine or a ten, it's only really slightly exceeded your already high expectations. I see. But I am rolling into these clubs where. If you're the sort of person who's just going to see like the unknown headliner on a Friday night and there's 500 in a room, I reckon your expectation level for that performance is set at about a five or a six. Yes. Yeah, as long as it's not terrible, this is our night out and we are absolutely fine with that. And if that person can then go on and be consistently a nine or a ten because – I would be because I would have so many things working at my advantage. I am an unknown quantity to them who's like really good at their job. I have an outsider's perspective and I have 15 years of material that they don't know any of. So at any moment I can just go <laughs> – like I mean in Australia you're really seeing a brand new show every year but they were seeing like just the best of whatever it is I had to offer on a nightly basis. So you would go from these shows – where you would walk on as at like a five or six expectation and walk off at the end and they'd feel like they'd had a 12 out of 10 show because there was just such a gap between what they had thought the show was going to be and what the show actually was. So for me, it was just incredibly fun night after night. I went to over 20 US states and did like nearly half the country I went to in states and did like normally you do like a week of comedy. So this is barely any of this is off anyone knowing who I am. If you went to comedy savvy cities. So say when I'm in Chicago playing, they have a huge comedy savvy scene there. So you might have 40 or 50 people a night who are there to see me. Mm. But if I go to Cleveland, you're playing 500 people a night and none of them are basically there to see you. They're just there because in Cleveland there's this awesome comedy club that's you know been running for 30 years that people just go out to regularly because they always have good comedy on there. And so those shows are the best shows you ever do in your life. It's as close to feeling like you do have superpowers because you are just, you know, walking out that you're just going to be so much better than they're expecting. And uh, I love the expectations description. Tell me about some of the joints you you went. Like you weren't just playing because I remember, you know, I'd see you later, probably at the cricket, and you say, I was at this joint in such and such. You weren't just playing the major cities, which is the bit that really that I really enjoyed when you were telling me about some of the weird and wonderful places, all of a sudden this kid from Hayfield is rolling up and telling jokes to. Oh, well, I mean, I've probably seen more of America than most Americans is the actual truth. And I certainly attacked it very much like that. So if you get offered, like an LA comedian gets offered, you know, 1200 bucks for a week in Alaska, they go, I'm not going to go to Alaska for 1200 bucks for a week. And I'm like, you mean I get a free trip to Alaska and I also get to do stand-up? And it's the best job for getting to know cities because I am at these clubs working maximum an hour a night. Often the headline set is 40 minutes or 50 minutes, but maximum an hour a night. I don't have to do – I mean, some in some cities you are doing press, which is actually part of the joy if you're on like, you know, Good Morning Alaska, you know, doing <laughs> interviews on these sort of shows. So you, you went so, to Alaska? Twice. Right. Went back to Alaska. <laughs> I was in a place called uh, Fairbanks, Alaska last year. Oh, yay. You know it? It's brilliant. It's the middle of nowhere, but then I drove to a log cabin to do a show 
in the middle of nowhere, in, like in the middle of nowhere. It was this log cabin bar. There was 80 people at the gig. They were all old men with beards down to here who looked after the nuclear weapons and they all just brought their guns to the gig. They just had their guns next to them at the gig. Oh my God, I have never tried harder. <laughs> Yeah, I went once when it was only daylight for one hour a day. I did a week of shows in Alaska where it was minus 30 degrees. I like. I, you, well, I, people are you, looking for a laugh at this stage, I guess. But incredible, these shows, because it, you do feel like you're in the Wild West. People drove 12 hours through, you know, like snow, like incredible <laughs> snow to come to these shows. Everyone's still smoking inside because it's Alaska and, like, if you went outside to have a cigarette, you would be dead. So, <laughs> like, you're doing these shows inside that are massively full of people because they've got nothing else, you know, to do, obviously. It's only, like, daylight for one hour a day. And they come out to these shows and they drink and they smoke and they party and you really do feel like you're at the – the end of the earth. It's an incredible experience. I love those. I mean, some of those gigs are some of the most fun shows. I remember doing one in Alaska at this bar that um, about every five minutes the audience would buy me a shot. And so I did an hour set and I would have done like maybe 12, 14 <laughs> shots you know, like during this set. And uh, it was so much fun. Like, you know, I mean, incredible. Particularly when... I mean, this is in Australia. I'm probably like five or six you know, years into hosting Gruen. It's like the number one show on the network. You're a reasonably sort of well-known person. And then you're just, you know, in Alaska on stage drinking shots, telling jokes, having fun. And it just <laughs> felt, yeah, it felt incredible, to be honest. I, I loved it. Negativity, mate. We all get it. Anyone that has any profile anywhere in the world, especially in this country, when you are being heckled in a performance or when you get a bad review, which is a rarity for you, it must be said. How have you learned to deal with it? Have you become better at taking negativity on board? Yeah, I got a great piece of advice from my friend Briggs, Adam Briggs. I'm sure people might know yes. Briggs, uh, the uh, rapper, the comedian, the writer. He said, why would you take criticism from somebody that you wouldn't take advice from? And I think it's such a great way of looking at it. Like why am I living – would I ask this person, this random person for advice on my act? Well, then why would I take their criticism on my act? But it took me a long way to get healthy around that, which is I, I'm like anybody. I, I, I have a broad picture understanding that there are a whole bunch of people who don't like me. And people are very, when you're a comedian in particular, people are very happy to tell you that they don't like you or they don't find you funny and those Do sort they, of things. Do they tell you to your face? Oh, yeah, all the time. Like it's, I think yeah. because of the nature of the job, I think it is something that, I mean, you, you're literally doing a job where somebody could be in the audience and yell out that you're not funny. I mean, it doesn't happen at many of my shows anymore, but it is a thing that can happen, but it's certainly like on the internet and these sort of things. But I, what I realised at a point was, that, you know, say, for example, philosophy, just to use that. We'll use the comments on, uh, you know, the podcast on yeah. philosophy, right? If I go to the comments on philosophy, it's a five-star iTunes podcast. People really like that show. I know that the majority of them are probably going to be really positive reviews of the show. But if I keep reading for long enough, there is going to be someone oh, yes. who, who does not like the show at all. So there's a couple of things now at play. That's, let's say that, and it's probably not even, it's probably one in 20, but let's say it's one in 10 just for the sake of this, right? So now I've got to think, what's my role in this? 
Because one in 10 on anything doesn't matter anyway. But I know if I read that, I will immediately ignore the nine that said really positive things about it and I'll concentrate on the 10th who said something negative about it. Now, mm. in any survey, nine out of 10, nine out of 10 dentists recommend this toothpaste. Okay, I'll buy that toothpaste. <laughs> you know, nine out of 10 people recognize. I mean, if you're Go doing ahead. something that these people like so much, of course, in doing that, that you're opening yourself up to the thing that they like about it might be the thing that that person absolutely does not like about it. The only reason I would see any of that is in my head, I'm going, you know what? I want to go and see somebody say some nice things about me. The only reason I've got to the bad one mm. is because I, in the first place, went down there for positive recognition. So I like to think, I like to cut it off there. I'm like, what are you looking for in this experience? Because you know, if you go there, this is eventually what will happen. So just don't go there. And it's, it's taken me a like a, a very long time and I would love to say that I am perfect on that. I am still not perfect on that. But any time that I do eventually get myself in one of those scenarios, I now have in my mind, you're only here because you started this out trying mm. to look for something positive. So maybe it's about you know being able to live without the positive stuff also enables you to live without the negative stuff. I like the 9 out of 10. You're right. Not 9 out of 10 is good. You now get the pickle who, who's asking questions along these lines. You've dealt with the penguin. Now you get the pickle. You ready? Hi, Will. Pickle here. I remember meeting you at mum and dad's wedding when my little brother ate seven pieces of chocolate cake <laughs> and he felt a bit sick afterwards. Anyway, what I want to know is what is the toughest gig you've ever had to do and what do you do if people don't laugh at your jokes? Which is something we've sort of been discussing. Um, what, what's the hardest one you've ever done? I, I, I'll tell you what the most disappointing one that I've ever done, okay. the one that immediately comes to mind when you, which is when I really just for a, a bunch of different reasons missed out on doing something that I really would have liked to do. I don't have a lot of regrets. Like there are things that I would have loved to be able to do Um that I haven't got to do, but I feel like with most of those, I gave them my best shot and I wasn't good enough and I'm fine with that. But there is one instance where I don't think that I did give something my best shot and I am annoyed by it. So um, I was in America and I'd got an opportunity to audition to do stand-up on the Conan O'Brien show over there. And I really loved Conan and I really liked his show a lot and – so even though that wasn't really what I was pursuing, I was pursuing long-form stand-up, not short-form stand-up, and a lot of my stuff doesn't really translate to, you know, four minutes on TV and working clean and all these things. But I really <laughs> was like, you know what? If I was going to do any of these, I would love to do Conan's show. From NBC Studios in New York, it's Late Night with Conan O'Brien. And I remember going to an audition and it was at the Improv – uh, the famous Hollywood improv in LA and um, I was on first. So basically in this room there was only about 30 people. They were all industry people essentially. There was no actual audience in the room and it was being hosted by a guy called Jimmy Pardo who's an amazing American comedian, so good at crowd work, so good at just riffing on the spot. He does warm-up for Conan's shows and he's just amazing, Jimmy, and um, has a really cool podcast called Never Not Funny which I've been a guest on. Absolutely love Jimmy. This is not Jimmy's fault, but it was kind of Jimmy's fault. And the only reason it was Jimmy's fault was 
that Jimmy was so good. So he's in a room with all these industry and he immediately starts riffing with them all about all these Hollywood insider industry jokes. So the audience feel like they're a good audience, but they haven't actually heard any jokes that aren't about the Hollywood insider industry. And insider crowds aren't particularly good crowds. So I'm first up on the night. And the minute I get up there, I go to take the microphone out of the microphone stand and it comes apart. So the the cord comes out of the microphone. And I do what I would never, ever do to this day because I'm so, you know, they're like, you've got to do your four minutes that you would do on TV. We want to see it as is, you know, as it would be on TV. So in my head, I am so concentrating on the fact that I've got to do these four minutes that I just don't react to what has just happened. All I do is bend over, I pick up the cord, I plug it back in and I start my set and I've I've lost them. They've, al- they've already lost all confidence in me. I'm the pilot who's, you know, done the pre- you know, pre-announcement and I'm sounding too nervous and now everybody's checking where the life jackets are. You know, there's, <laughs> they've already made up their mind. In that Malcolm Gladwell blink, you know, they've got an impression of me and the impression is that I am not in charge of this room. And part of it is because they've just come straight from somebody who could not be more in charge of the room. Like Jimmy had them in stitches talking about things that only they would know about and then suddenly I've walked up there you know, from Australia, dropped the microphone, like tried to start my set. Terrible. Today, what I would have done is I would have gone, just own this moment, be in it, acknowledge it, make a joke about it, talk about, you know, oh, great, this is a great start after all this. Like be in that moment, acknowledge what was in the room. I bet I could have got them. I could have got them by connecting with what happened in that moment. But instead I was so, and then once I was in my set, it was like they weren't laughing at the start and then I was just inside my head like thinking about, you know, what had gone wrong and what I could do and it was like it was four minutes that felt like 50 minutes but 50 minutes where normally if I had 50 minutes, you give me 50 minutes with a room, I'll get you. Like, you know, it might take me a while to work out what it is that you're going to relate to but at the end of that 50 minutes I'll have you. But in this four minutes I just could not readjust. I just completely tanked it. I blanked it. I I missed my moment. And I was so embarrassed by that, which again is probably, mm. you know, part of the problem, that I didn't reapply. And I could what I know now is I absolutely could have reapplied. Everybody's seen a comedian just have a bad, you know, a bad gig. You know, like like you said, like, you know, sometimes Steve Smith plays a bad shot. You know, yeah. it just it just happens sometimes and it happens to everybody. And what I should have done is put my ego aside and gone, this happens to everybody and you are not a perfect person and you just had a bad day and, you know, get back on it and try again and learn from this. But it took me longer to learn from that. I was so embarrassed by it that it took me longer than I would have liked to learn the important lesson from it, which was that it didn't really matter and that I should have just gone with my instincts, not gone with what I thought I had to do. So when you walk out of the room in that situation, how does it work in your world, mate? Do, do you get a phone call? Do you get a message? Do, do they get hold of your agent? Or like, How is the news delivered to you? Like you're, you're probably uh, feeling it as you I walk out. I didn't need the news delivered to me. Right. So you just knew. You just knew walking out the door you weren't going to get a gig. I put my head down and right. I walked out the door and I, yeah, I was at best I hope that I'm the third worst person. <laughs> So say say you are on a show like that. Say if you'd been on Conan O'Brien. Yeah. 
apart from saying tick, and I get that, I, I get the wow, this is I love this show and I've been on it. What does something like that do for you as a as a touring comedian? Like this is crass, mate, but is it money in the bank? Yeah, it'd be money just for my price. Like you know, oh, just I mean, to I go did, on the show. So I did no, no, the price for like going on the road. So okay. So you know how I was telling you that I might be that guy who'd do your week for $1,500 or $2,000. Yep. Suddenly I wouldn't do your week for less than $3,000 okay. or whatever it is. Okay. It so it has a direct up. flow on effect. Yes, absolutely. Because it's something also they can promote. They can so as seen on Conan, which to a comedy club, you know, they'd show that clip, they'd put it on their website, they'd send it to their regular subscribers. Like it's a marketing tool for them. So your value to them goes up and your value in the market goes up. Let's get back to Will. And the business of comedy, uh, I'm not asking you how much you get paid, but selling out festivals, are you making good money and do you involve yourself in that or do you have no connection to the business of Will Anderson at all or do you feel that you want to be hands-on with that? Uh, I mean, it's pretty hands-on, I would say. Um, particularly because I don't always choose particularly commercial things. You know, my career has been one where I have had uh, opportunities to do much better paid things that would not have been um, what I wanted to do. And occasionally I have done much better paid things that have turned out not to be things that I wanted to do and I've readjusted and gone back to doing things that I want to do. So the most truthful answer to that question, you know, without going into, you Mm. know, bank accounts and figures and stuff is that when I started doing stand-up comedy, I I was the last of the generations. It was the last of the years where people would run away to join the circus. It was still not a job. Okay. There were people within stand-up comedy who had jobs, but now you would look at stand-up comedy and say, well, you can be in radio, you can be a writer, you can be a producer, you can be, you can do the festivals. There's all these festivals. There was one festival, the Melbourne Festival, it had been going for like five years when I started. Like, you know, Richard Stubbs was on radio and there'd been the big gig and stuff, but it wasn't until Good News Week came along that it was regular, you know, slots again for comedians on TV. It wasn't the world that... Husey and Hilsey and Rove and, you know, Michelle Laurie and Tripod and, you know, American Russo and all these guys, Peter Halliott, all these people who were of the same generation, we all grew up into what we did for fun becoming an industry. No person our age getting into comedy now, they can listen to, you know, podcasts from around the world. They can see how many Mm. comedians are. They can see their work on YouTube. That wasn't really the world that I went into. So the answer is it's made me so much more money than I ever could have imagined and expected when I first started doing it. It is consistently meant, I think if you earn over $250,000 a year, you are amongst the 1% of um, highest earners in the country, mm-hmm. I believe is the statistic. And yeah, there wouldn't have been a time probably in the last nearly 20 years that I wouldn't have been at least in the top 1%. And often, you know, like there's been some some really good years in there. So, yeah, no, you absolutely, um, yeah, can make a really good living out of doing it and and I've been really lucky that I have. I could have made a, a much bigger living out of doing it by making some other choices but I've been lucky enough that I've been mostly able to just do things that I really like to do and find a way to make them financial enough. Yep. So I don't really judge the amount of work I put into something based on how much I'm getting paid for it. 
Like this, I put as much work into the podcast as I put into, you know, something that I would be getting paid, you know, a hundred times as much to do. They, I don't look at, I just put as much work into everything as that project needs to be good. And the financial compensation that comes with that really varies. But my performance or level of dedication to it doesn't vary at all based on the financial side of it. Funny you say that. My 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 greatest amount of work goes into my podcast, and yet it, it financially it is just so not worth the time. And I got a message this morning. We're talking about social media, mate. I got a message this morning from some bloke saying, "Used to love your podcast. Now you've got ads on it. I just can't listen." Mm. And and I didn't reply well, but I thought about saying, mate. <laughs> You're happy for me to spend 20 hours of a week just to provide you free entertainment with no commercial return? Anyway, that's a story for another day. We're talking about commercial. But that's, I mean, I, I think it's a, a reasonable point to make because do you deserve to be financially recompensed for that thing? I think that you shouldn't expect it, but I think that you do deserve it. Yes. And often young comedians are so paranoid and get made fun of if they promote their stuff. You know, like it's, it seems to be uncool to be able mm, to promote your I own stuff. I have noticed this and in your field. It's ridiculous. Like make something that you're really proud of and if you're really proud of it, then try to get as many people to listen to it or watch it or read it as you possibly can because like that's the whole point. The whole point is to try to make something really good and then get as many people as possible to see it, particularly if it's really good. Yeah. So I, I don't subscribe to that and I certainly don't subscribe to the idea. I mean, like, again, like if you don't like the ads, there's a little skip thing on your on your phone or your podcasting where you can just skip through the ads. I remember, mate, back in the day where you had a commercial arrangement. Was it Maxi Bond? Was it an ice cream? Yeah, Maxi Bond ice cream. That's right. And you you did some ads and I remember what you told me you got paid, which I won't mention, and I was like, what? And then you went and said, yeah, and I was able to drink a free mini bar as well. And then I remember you text me a year later saying, they're running the ads again. I get paid the whole whack again. And I remember thinking, that is possibly the greatest thing that I ever heard. Oh, as someone who's as anti-advertising as I am, mm. I understand the amazing hypocrisy that so much of my career has relied on advertising. Because <laughs> firstly... That's what set up my entire career. So I did, yeah, I did this advertisement for the Maxi Bond. I'm happy to say what I got paid for it, $50,000. At that point it was- It was enormous. It was like sink the ship type cash in our world at that stage. I'd done uh, about three years of stand-up at that stage and absolutely no way had earned half of that (laughs) in the entire time that I had done stand-up comedy. So basically what I decided to do and the reason I did the ads was I said that's $50,000 for a year. I can be- a full-time stand-up comedian on $50,000. So I'm going to use that $50,000 not to like buy a car or anything like that. That's my wages for a year. Now go out and do every free gig you can possibly do. Essentially, I was paying myself to get good at stand-up comedy with maximum oh, I see, money. I see, I see, I see. And 
Yeah, so at the end of the first year, they rolled it over, which meant I got another $50,000. So I felt like now I had this Maxi Bond comedy scholarship that I should, <laughs> you know, sort of keep going on. And then they sold it overseas. It sold in the UK and it sold in France. And so there was a period of time because it actually became very popular in France. In fact, I am led to believe that for a small period of time I was, because they redubbed it, of course, in France. Yes. It wasn't me. But it was quite a popular advertisement in France. And so I think if I had walked the streets of Paris <laughs> at a certain time, people might have been like, oh, messy, <laughs> uh, <you know>? <laughs> so, <laughs> um I once got booked, my agent got approached for a corporate gig in France and had to explain to them that it had been dubbed and I didn't speak French. So. <laughs> But so there was a period of time where I think probably I was making like $150,000, $200,000 a year on these rollovers of- I did not know this. Of these wow. ads, particularly because I was getting paid in, you know, in pounds when it would translate. So, yeah, the first few years of my career were very much financed by the money I got from the Maxi Bond. So <laughs> I, I li I'd like to thank that chalk-coated uh, ice <laughs> confection because I wasn't allowed to say chocolate or ice cream because I don't think technically it's either of those things, but it was a chalk-coated <laughs> ice confection. Thank you, Maxi Von. Is the ad still, is it, will I find it on YouTube or not? Well, there was a series of them. We played at least one of them on Gruen. So, of course, advertising, the other way it came into my life was I've done a show about yes. advertising on the ABC for 13 years and in one of the series we played at least, we found at least one of them and played it on the show, so. <laughs> Mate, this next question you could because it's your life's work and passion, it could be a four-hour answer. But you sit down and you, okay, I need a new show for 2022. Now, I know you, back when we used to spend a lot more time together, this would be more last minute. You go, oh, geez, I've got to write my show. I haven't even started yeah. yet. What what's the, what's the process and then from what I can gather, you almost market tested in quite a scientific way when you go out to smaller audiences. So, so tell me, how do you write a comedy show? And then how do you know if it's going to work and how do you test it and how do you refine it? Big question, I know. The answer is I don't know to any of those things. I know that my attitude is whatever it needs, whatever it takes. Like there is no set way. Every show comes out a little differently. Every show has different challenges. There are... I did a show about being arrested on the way to Wagga Wagga yeah. and the way that I wrote that show was there was aspects of that story that I knew I needed to tell because they had been funny. But I, I went to the Brunswick Picture House up near where I live in northern New South Wales and I would go out on stage every night and I would let the audience ask me questions about it. I'd be just like, just what are you interested in? And I'll just answer those questions and sort of the funny and the funniest and most compelling things. If a question got asked a lot, I was like, oh, well, that's something the audience is really interested in. I'm going to have to kind of come up with a part of the show that answers that question, you know, that wasn't necessarily a question that I would have put in the show. But that's probably an unusual circumstance. Most of the time it comes from what I think is what I want to talk about and then how will I find a funny and engaging way to talk about this. It's, it's very much what I'm thinking about at the moment. Okay, so uh, do your best to answer these questions in a short, sharpish yeah. manner. <laughs> no, 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 just, just so we could – I just want to work through the, the, yeah. the process, mate. Yeah. Um, when you are trying to write a show, does it obsess you? Is it with you all the time or can you walk out and go for a walk and forget about it or do you wake up in the middle of the night thinking that's what I need to do there? 
so uh, the, people often say, you know, and I almost said it earlier on in this interview, which was find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. But I would never say that because I think that is the exact opposite in some ways of what is actually true. Like find something that you love and you'll never have a day off for the rest of your life is actually how that saying should so go. So it's always with you. Obsessed. Obsessed. Okay. To so the you- point where you have to often – I can just find myself drifting in conversations because I've started thinking about something else or my mind has gone, my mind has started mm. unlocking something or is playing something over my mind. You, uh, like I often, particularly if I am in the writing process, I have to, when I re-emerge into polite society, really train myself to shut off the noise because I am absolutely 100% thinking about it all the time. Which can't all be an time. easy it can't be an easy way to live. So I'm sure this is how long's a piece of string, but roughly over your average of twenty odd years of writing these shows, how much time are you sitting down to compile what is ostensibly your first draft? Uh, well, as you said, it used to be much shorter. I used to say it was about six weeks, like that I'd weeks. be developing stuff all year, but that there was six weeks where I would essentially do like a shortened pre-season and like do so many gigs and sort of just like run into it. That's not how I do it now. I would say six months now six is probably months. how long it takes of actual writing. Like, Jeez. And sometimes when I say that, right, it's more about what I throw away. You know, in the old days I had six weeks and I had a bucket that I had to fill up, right? The, the show is the bucket. It's 60 minutes of jokes and I have to fill up that bucket. So essentially in that six weeks, all I'm looking for is like as many things as possible that can fill up that bucket. And then at the end, hopefully I have a bucket full of good stuff. Now I like to think it's a bit – that quote from Michelangelo about the the sculptures already in the piece of rock. I just have to find out which bits to get rid of. Yep. So what I do is I build a rock. I just write about everything that I'm interested in until I find out. Sometimes you've just got to write something out or think it out to get bored of it. Sometimes you're just like, I'm bored of this now. I'm actually not interested in this, but it took me two weeks of writing about it or not being able to unlock it or whatever to just – so now it's about – yeah, it's the jokes that John West rejects that makes you the best. That's (laughs) – there's so much stuff. Like, I mean, I've been writing on this new show, I would say, for six months already and I finally I, – I probably have two hours of material I could do. Like there's so many things that I could actually just do. I think I have finally unlocked the one thing that I will take out of the last six months of work that the rest of the show will be built on. Like and that was only in the last three weeks or something that I was like, oh, this idea is so much better than everything else that I've written so far. This should be – this shouldn't be the closing routine of all that other stuff. This should be the opening routine of what the show is going to be. Brilliant. So you've got that idea. You've got your words. Are you typing it? Are you writing it on a computer? Is that what you're doing? I remember you used to write it out on pieces of paper, but are you writing it on a computer or not? I still do both. So I have okay. a process where I go from <laughs> one to the other. So yep. I'll often scribble in my notebook first and then I'll type it out onto, onto a computer Often I'll improvise on stage, so I might there might be an element of that where I'm then listening back to how I improvise something and adding it to my notes on my computer, you know, as like a way it could be phrased. You know, often it's better – it came out better when I was just saying it than it would if I write it down and I'll incorporate that. Then what I do is I print it out. I stick it back in my – like it's no good for the people listening at home, but I can show you. So yeah. right here, like I have a giant notebook that like has had – 
the typed out pages stuck back into it and then I huh. will like work like so I stick the pages on one side of the notebook and then on the other side I leave a page blank and I'll essentially just go through and I'll write in freehand again off my notes, scribble stuff out, rearrange it in that way and then I'll take it back to the computer again and then it's just a series of that process until eventually it's not on page at all really. There gets to a point where the only work I'm doing on it is while I'm on stage. So I can still, it's funny you say, I can still remember your your writing in blue kilometrico pens, right? It was probably next to me in year nine Japanese that we both spectacularly did really poorly in, but I can, <laughs> I can remember that familiar script of yours. So y- you've got it, okay. Then do you walk around your home or somewhere putting it all into your brain, inputting it or not? Or is it inputted because you've written it already? Uh I would say that, uh, yeah, so what you've identified is probably a step in it that I didn't mention, which is that a lot of that writing process isn't just sitting in front of my computer. So sometimes it's about sitting in front of your computer so that then when you go and get the leaves out of the pool or take the dogs for a walk and your brain isn't engaged in that way, it's half engaged in something else. That's why I'm very good at yard work. Like at my house, I am very good at like going and sweeping up the leaves or like, you know, doing some gardening, these sort of things, because that's just writing time for me. Because if I'm half concentrating on a simple other task, that's when my brain is doing a lot of going, no, this is how it should work. And this is what it's really about. And I'm Are able to- Are you speaking it at that point or not? No, it's all in my head, okay. but it is definitely a conversation. Do I'm you, having you- a conversation with myself in my own head. I'm like taking a bit and I'm almost putting it up on- um, like one of those mechanics lifts and yep. I'm getting underneath it and I'm like, or I'm at a, like, a, you know, a university, you know, board and I'm, you know, flop, sw- swapping yep. stuff around. There is definitely a conversation between two me's going on in my brain, the one that is, you know, the show and then the one that is like the external critic of the show who's like, you know, looking at it from the outside and going, what if you did this? What if you did this? So, um, but it's definitely a conversation, but it's rarely happening out loud. Like sometimes I can hear my own voice in my head quite well. So it's not like I necessarily need to say it out loud, but there is a point where you eventually say it out loud. In the old days, what I would normally do is probably write the script, learn it, and then start saying it, but leave room to improvise. Whereas now what I tend to do is like, I might write, say the joke was going to be about, um, say I went and got a COVID test, right? And so I want to write like this joke about this COVID test. And there's like, 10, what I think is 10 funny things in it. And I write those 10 funny jokes, but that's it. That's all I'm going to do about this thing. And then I'm going to take it up on stage and I'm going to go tell the audience about going to get my COVID test and see what of those funny lines come up, which of them come up better, which of them are in different places. Like I'll just let it, I'll trust myself. I'll be in that moment. I won't think about the ball coming at my face. I'll just get out of my own way and start playing my shots. And then, then, you might then take it away and restructure it because some of it didn't work or the funny bit was in the middle and then you might do that again. But it's a much more I, – I don't like to prescribe too much before I get on stage because then I'm missing that explosion of, you know, creation before I get to recreation. And a couple more on this one. I When I started calling the footy, AFL footy, I don't know, five, six years ago – if I didn't know 12 blokes on the Western Bulldogs team on the weekend, to learn those 12 numbers, 
wrote so I could recall them like that would take me probably an hour. Now if you gave me 12 players I'd never heard of and 12 numbers, that hour would take four minutes, five minutes, which is fantastic from a professional point of view because I think your brain learns to – you're using it and it grows and you, you learn that skill. Do you find it easier now to memorise your routines or is that not a process that you have? Like for me, it's so much easier to learn numbers and names than it was five years ago because my brain is trained that way. I might occasionally forget a joke in my set, but uh, I have a simple bit of advice that I give to young people, which is firstly, no one else knows how it's meant to go. So as a stand-up comedian... The yep. show is from when I start talking to when I finish talking. That's yep. the show. I'm the only person who knows how it's meant to go. So if I miss the joke, I can either tell it at a different place or I can let it go or if it's important to a callback. I've got to the end of the show and like I'm about to do a callback to some joke that I haven't set up in the first place. That's happened. But it's such a rare statistical thing that happens. I don't have trouble memorising my own material at all because I okay. wrote it. Yeah, right, right. right I've been right, right. memorising it for six months. The reason it's in the order that it's in is because I've for six months have gone, this bit should go here, this should bit should go here. Okay. I don't have to memorise it. I built it. I wrote it. Like no one else knows how this is meant to go or why it's meant to go. But these days <laughs> I know why things are in the place they're in. They're not just in that place. Like so I guess what people sometimes, like sometimes people, the thing that they are most amazed by about stand-up comedy, you'll have people come up and go, how do you remember it all? Like that's the thing that amazes them. And it's like that's the easiest bit of it is remembering it all. The hard bit is putting all the bits in the right place in the first place because if I've done the work to put everything where it's meant to be, you don't have to remember it. It all makes sense. It's in the order that it's in for very specific reasons. I need to talk about this before I talk about this. I need to explain this before I get to this. They won't get this if it goes to this. This is how this story is being told. I can't do this. If you don't understand all that, then yes, of course you can forget stuff because the stuff doesn't make sense to you. But for me, the style of comedy I do, like if you're a one-liner comedian, it's a different thing. You have to memorise. Mm. I don't think that my capacity to memorise stuff is good at all. Like, I mean, if I'm doing a script for Gruen, for example, like – you know, I would be lost without an auto cue, like for the, you know, the spine of the show. And it's a small percentage of the amount of words that would be in one of my stand-up shows. But um, no, no, I, I, I think only for my stand-up am I good at remembering it. I don't think that I have a specifically good, good memory for those things. What's more important, content or delivery? Both. Like both is the answer. I mean, for some people, one more than the other. For me, about the same, I'd say. I think I'm a pretty competent writer um, and I think that I'm a pretty competent performer but I'm not really great at either of them. Like I am uh, – like, you know, I don't have – my voice is shouty, it's high-pitched, it's not particularly, you know, um, I say you know a lot and um and ah and I swear and, you know, like speaking unusual speech patterns, I can't do voices, I can't play a musical instrument, you know, so – I'm not a, you know, a natural performer in that sense and I am a good writer. Um, I'm a good writer for myself but I've never, you know, I'm not the most brilliant comedy writer in the entire world either. You know, it's like I write well for me Yeah, is probably the – and it takes me back to why I wouldn't have been a good journalist 
and why I wouldn't be a good writer for another comedian and I wouldn't be a good comedian doing other people's jokes. I write well for me and luckily, you know, that that works enough. And before I ask you the final question, the delivery process, you've taken me through it, how it all runs. Where is the joy in your job compared to the stress and pressure and anxiety in your job? Where's the fun bit come from? I mean, on a, it's something that I've thought about a lot. And there was certainly a period of time a couple of years back where I really felt like I wasn't getting, you know, that experience that I used to get from going on stage and performing in front of people. And I had to unlock why that was and where that, you know, disconnected come from. And I think it's just about, again, reprioritizing why it is that you do something, you know, the reason that you do something in the first place. When I first started in comedy, I loved showing off. I loved meeting girls. You love the fact that, you know, people know who you are. Whereas like part of the reason I loved my 10 years in America was that I got to do the job mm. that I loved with all the anonymity that I love. It was my perfect scenario because I am not a person who likes going to events or the Logies or being like a publicly known personality outside my work. I just like, you know, that th there is an audience there for my work, but that is the relationship between me and that audience is that I, I make stuff and they hopefully like the stuff that I make. And that is the nature of our relationship, you know, and that it doesn't need to be things that are external to that. And often in my world, when things become uncomfortable, it's when you get caught up in the things that are external to that. So, for me, it was a reprioritization of what, what what it is that I want to do. Um, I asked this question on uh, philosophy now, and uh, I didn't ask it when you came on the show because it's one a new one that I've added into the mm -hmm. roster. But it's based on the only inspirational phrase that I have, um, you know, that I really subscribe to. I have a little piece of metal on my desk, and inscribed into it, it says, "What would you attempt if you knew you could not fail?" And the way that I interpret that, the way that it gets interpreted in my mind is imagine this project is going to be successful. Don't imagine what you have to do for it to be successful. Imagine success is guaranteed. You are doing something that is successful. Now imagine what is that thing that you would really love to be doing? How would you like to be spending your days? What would you like to be engaged in? What does your week look like? What is the you know performance of that thing? What is that project about? What, what other people does it involve? Like what's the question at the heart of it that you're trying to answer? Like, so I think I've re-engaged with that, not just through asking it on philosophy, but that is probably a place that I needed to come back to, which was, I'd been involved doing a few projects that I'd been perfectly competent at but just didn't feel like they were answering big questions for me. I love the explanation. I love the in-depth of it and I love the philosophy question. As you were talking, I'm thinking, hmm, if I couldn't fail, what would I do? It's a Well, what would you question. do? Can you answer that question? Yeah, but it's probably nothing to do with what I'm doing now though. Um, well, that's okay. That's it, part of it. If I couldn't fail... I'd front a band as a singer and a guitarist. What but style I, of band? Just a rock and roll band and just 
have a combi van and just cruise around and play at the Brunswick Heads Hotel or the <laughs> Pacific Hotel or the Rookery Nook and just <laughs> create songs. I think that would be super cool, but I can't do well, that. That was me in America. That's That right. was that life, you know? Getting on the plane at five o'clock in the morning yeah. to go to the new, some new city to spend a week walking around the streets and doing some shows at night. I'm a pretty minor chance of this actually happening due to my talent level. So final question for you on the show, and it will be the same as the sports podcast, mate. For all the youngsters out there listening who want to achieve something in their field, they want to achieve somewhere near the level of success you've had in the artistic field, which is quite extraordinary to be honest, mate. If you could distill what you've learned and give them a piece of advice, what would it be? Firstly, I mean, I, okay, two things. I'm going to say two if that's all right. Of course. Don't be afraid to fail. Failure is such an important part of the process. And the thing that will stop you from being able to realise your full talent in whatever you do is a fear of failure. If you are not willing to experiment enough to make a mistake, you'll always play it too safe to be successful. There, By thinking that you can appeal to everyone, that you'll never appeal to anyone. It's handcuffs. So please embrace failure as part of the process, an important part of the process. But the other one is, and I think that you and I sitting here, let's, if we took everything else out, right? Like Howie Games and Willosophy are just two of the, you know, bigger interview podcasts, you know, in Australia at the very least, right? Mm -hmm. We're just two kids who sat together in, you know, Year 11 uh, chemistry where the, you know, teacher didn't even know what my name was, <laughs> referred to me as Mr. Howard's friend for <laughs> an entire year. So we weren't born under a star. I'm from Anderson's Road, Denison. My dad's a dairy farmer. There's 250 people where I'm from, you know. You're from a really tiny place. Like mm. Max Barry, who we went to school with, who's an international author, is from a really tiny little place. Yes. You don't need to be – none of us are special. No. No, no one – like – None of us are special people. No, none of us were born under a star. None of us, um, yeah, we, we've all had our share of luck and opportunity and privilege and all those sort of things, you know, and there are a myriad of obstacles in the way of other people that weren't in the way of us as we pursued the careers that uh, we wanted to do. At least we could see it, you know, when we looked at TV and saw sports commentators or comedians or, you know, even authors, you know, they were white men. They looked like us if you're not that you know, there is a whole range of other things. I think it's really important, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. And the more that we can offer opportunities mm. for a whole range of people to be in those roles, the more we're going to inspire a whole range of other people to be in those roles. But you don't need to be special. Just try. Just give it a go. If you, if you like, what's the worst thing that can happen? It doesn't work. And you just move on. It's fine. Like, you know, failure is part of life and failure is part of the process. But yeah, you don't, you don't have to be special and also you don't have to be the best. Don't, don't not do something that you love to do just because you're not going to be the best at it. I think that we ruin so much these days, you know, like you look at like high school sport and things like that, you know, and it's all, you know, these guys are going to play in the AFL and if you're not the guy who makes it to the AFL, then your entire junior sport experience is an absolute failure. Mm. Junior sport should be about playing in a team and hanging out with your mates and getting to play a game that's fun. That's not a failure. What did you come out of it with? 
eight friendships and a capacity to know my role in a team and work well with others, well, yes. A plus. Yes, yes, yes. You know, you won in this situation. So, yeah, don't be held back by the idea that you need to be special to try to do something in life because if this podcast, if you've made it to two hours into this podcast, the one thing you've proved is that neither of us are particularly special and it's gone fine. <laughs> Mate, it's great <laughs> advice. Um, we are at the end. I wanted to have you on as the guest in the Artist Series 1 because we're good mates and I'm fascinated about what you do and I've never had the opportunity to sit down and ask you these questions, but two, because I knew you would set the, whether you like it or not, you'll set the template of the way these would go moving forward because I knew you would end up steering us in a direction rather than me about how this should work. And it's become a lot clearer to me as we've done it, the way to proceed with this. I've loved every moment of it. I'm proud of you. I love you. You're a star and uh, you deserve everything that comes your way, mate, and continue to go out there on the limb and entertain people and make them laugh because it's I can't think of a better gift than be able to make people laugh for a living. I think it's outstanding. You're a star, mate. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for joining me on the show. Now, there's a man that's had a genuine crack and made a huge success out of his passions. I'm telling you, those house plays he wrote at school were all-time gold. Thanks to Will for being Will. May we spend a day at the Boxing Day test soon again, mate. Thanks to you all for listening and spreading the word about the show. Until next Tuesday on the Artist Series with rock star Kirk Pengilly. Peace and love. Listener.